Right, hello everybody. Welcome to the event tonight. Um, we're honoured to have Catherine uh, Connolly here with us all the way from sunny L London, um, who is um, a, historic, uh, a historian and activist um, and uh, Sylvia Pankhurst's biographer. Uh, she's also edited this marvellous book that we have on sale this evening um, for the bargain price of £10. Uh, you can buy your copy um, at the end. Um, so the way that it's going to work is that Catherine's going to talk for around 40 minutes um, about the book and about the life of Sylvia Pankhurst, and then we're going to have um, a question and answer session uh, at the end. Um, and just to plug um, that this is a Bristol Transformed event. So Bristol Transformed is a political education um, event that happens every year now. We had our first one this year in April. Um, uh, but throughout the year, we're doing little tiny events um, to kind of keep out the momentum going. This is the first of our little tiny events. Um, uh, so it's going to be marvellous. Thank you for kicking us off. Um, and then in um, a couple of weeks, we have one uh, with Dave Renton, which is um, about his book, which Simon's organised. Um, and that's on the 18th of June. Cracking. Got all of the uh, um, details. So yeah, you can come along to that as well. Uh, you can find the details on the Bristol Transformed website and also on our Facebook page and everything else. Um, so without any further ado, I will pass over to Catherine. Okay. Um, well, look, first of all, thank you very much, uh, Bristol Transform, for having me. Um, it's lovely to be here uh, in Bristol to, to talk about the book. One of the, one of the first things that I should say is that um, just a few days ago, um, we got the very sad news that Rita Pankhurst, uh, Sylvia Pankhurst's daughter-in-law, passed away. Um, so this was somebody who uh, knew Sylvia um, for a substantial portion of her life and moved out to Ethiopia with her. Um, and that's, uh, well, first of all, I'd, I'd just like to say that for anybody, if anybody here knew Rita, um, then I would obviously like to offer my condolences. I'd also like to say that she was um, she was an incredibly kind person. Um, she was very kind to me when I was writing the biography, um, and I know that that's that's true. Um, she was very kind to everybody who who worked on Sylvia and wanted to write about Sylvia Pankhurst. She was passionately committed to to preserving uh, the memory of Sylvia Pankhurst, um, and also to. Um, to ensuring the protection of histories that are under attack. Um, as a librarian, um, this, this was her, her professional work, and both she and her husband, Richard Pankhurst, who was Sylvia's son, uh, both of them were passionately committed to the preservation um, of women's history, um, and then also, as well, of course, uh, the preservation of Ethiopian history. Um, so. That's, that's, I think, an important way to, to start this talk, and um, I hope that this talk about Sylvia is very much in the spirit of, of Rita Pankhurst, and so I would like to, I'd like to do this talk in, in her memory. So I, I, want to, uh, I want to start off by introducing Sylvia Pankhurst to you, um, the, the author of this text. Um, so Sylvia Pankhurst, uh, here she is. I don't know how well you can see this image, uh, but she is the, the woman here on the right uh, with her mother, Emmeline Pankhurst, and her older sister, Christabel Pankhurst. Oh, thank you for doing that. Thank you. Uh, hopefully we'll, be, we'll get this image in... Uh, You'll be able to see that far better, hopefully, in a minute. Thank you. Ah, there they are. They emerge from the wall. Um, so uh, Sylvia Pankhurst came from uh, this very political family. Um, they were a, a middle-class family in Manchester, um, in the northwest of the country. And in 1903, uh, Emmeline Pankhurst and Christabel Pankhurst founded the Women's Social and Political Union, uh, which was a campaigning organization to try and win votes for women. And really what marked this campaign out um, from the other campaigns at the time was their decision to use direct action and civil disobedience to draw attention to their cause, so what was known as militancy. 
Now, uh, Sylvia was an activist um, in the militant suffragette movement. At the time that we meet her in 1911, uh, she herself had been imprisoned on two occasions for her participation in the cause. But she had disagreements with the way that the movement was going and the way that it was being directed by her mother and older sister. In particular, um, the increasing and deliberate elitism of the campaign. And so by 1911, the original women who had um, been involved uh, in the Women's Social and Political Union were increasingly being marginalized from the campaign and an argument uh, was very explicitly being put inside the Women's Social and Political Union that working class women should not be at the forefront of the campaigns, um, that it was the that they were too weak, not educated enough, didn't have enough time, um, the press weren't concerned when they got arrested, so on and so forth. And therefore, the conclusion that Emmeline and Christabel drew was that the campaign ought to be led by elite women on behalf of their poorer sisters. Now, Sylvia Pankhurst, as a socialist, fundamentally disagreed with that approach. Um, but again, at this moment when we meet her, she was keeping her, her disagreements, her very serious misgivings about the direction of the campaign quiet. Um, it was obviously very difficult to criticize the campaign at a time when her comrades were being imprisoned. She didn't want to draw any further attacks on the movement. But what she did try to do was to maintain her independence from it. She wasn't on the payroll of the Women's Social and Political Union, but she was trying to earn her living independently as a journalist and as an artist. She was a very talented artist, and so this is what she was doing in this period. Her family were aware of her disagreements with the direction in which they were taking the campaign and uh, probably partly um, to sort of sideline Sylvia Pankhurst a little bit, they came up with a, a project for her um, and they decided that what she ought to do would be to write the history of the militant campaign which conveniently meant that she wasn't allowed to get arrested again uh, because then this would ruin the book deadline. Um, so she had to kind of not play a leading role for a while and was told to go off and write the book. And that's what she did. She went off and wrote this history of the campaign, which was incredibly loyal um, and didn't express, again, any of her disagreements. Then um, the leadership of the campaign came up with this idea that Sylvia ought to promote the book in America. Um, so quite far away, obviously, from, uh, from the midst of, of the action in Britain. And so uh, what she did was to, to go off um, to uh, the United States and Canada on two occasions to promote this book and also to talk about the, uh, the militant struggle uh, for women's political rights in Britain. So she went, uh, she went twice. Um, here is, this is a a brochure, I don't know how well you can see that, but this is the, uh, the brochure that was produced for one of her tours. They were organized by professional lecturing agencies. And she went twice, uh, once at the beginning of 1911 for three months, and once at the beginning of 1912, again for about three months. And her schedule was quite astonishing. Um, she spoke in 20 different states, if we include Washington DC as a state, which I know it isn't, but um, for sake of argument, um, speaking sometimes once, twice, three times a day, or also speaking in Canada um, as well for, for a short part of, of both of those tours. So this was... Um, an incredibly extensive tour, which up until now, we've only had the very briefest of details about. I want to, um, I want to fast forward a little bit before I come on to talk about what she did in the tours to what happens when she returns from the 1912 tour. Because when she left um, in January 1912 to go and talk about uh, the militant suffragettes in North America, it looked as though a women's suffrage bill was about to be passed through Parliament. It felt as though they might be on the cusp of success. And so at the beginning of that tour, Sylvia Pankhurst was very much going to audiences to say, our methods have won. Um, we are on the cusp of this enormously important victory. This is a vindication of using militancy um, to, to win. 
When she returned in 1912 back to Britain, the suffrage bill that looked as though it was going to be passed had been scuppered. That, that had gone. There'd been, in response to that, a massive escalation of militancy, um, a coordinated mass attack on private property in the West End of London, all of the department stores, all of their windows smashed. Sylvia's own mother was facing potentially a very long term of imprisonment because it was an attack on private property and private property is sacred to the British state. So if you attack that, you can face a very long period of imprisonment. Her older sister, Christabel Pankhurst, to escape that fate, had fled to Paris. And it's at this moment that Sylvia Pankhurst breaks with her previous policy of being quiet about her disagreements and tries to seize control of the militant suffragette campaign in Britain. First of all, by trying to open it out. And instead of it being an inward-looking campaign that relied on a very small group of activists, she tries to turn this into a mass campaign. So organizing huge demonstrations in, in towns and cities up and down Britain. But what she also does as well, and more importantly, is with a friend of hers, a woman called Zelie Emerson. She goes to East London, which was a, a working class part of London, then as now one of the poorest parts. And she set up a branch of the suffragettes there with the intention of creating a movement in which working class women could be absolutely at the forefront of campaigning for their own political rights and so attempting to really break with that elitism of the past. Now, what happens after that is, is quite well known to people that know the story of the militant suffragettes. It's for taking that decision that Sylvia Pankhurst and that branch that she set up in East London were expelled from the Women's Social and Political Union at the beginning of 1914 by her mother and her older sister. The differences between the two, now, now two organizations with that split, the difference between the two would be very starkly revealed only a few months later when the First World War broke out and the Women's Social and Political Union, that more elitist campaign, decided to suspend the struggle for women's political rights and decided instead to support the British Empire. Sylvia's campaign in East London never suspended their political campaigning and would quite soon develop into an explicitly anti-war campaign. What's less well known though is that it's absolutely at the height of creating that campaign in East London that Sylvia was thinking about what she'd done in America and that's when she was writing this book. Now we know that um, because on the typescript, as you can see here, um, she refers to something happening now. And where she's written now, uh, just there, um, she's put a little asterisk. And then right at the bottom of the page, she's put February 1913. So this, she starts to write a manuscript. She writes eight chapters of a book, which has only now been published. Um, she writes eight chapters about what she was doing in America. Now. In February 1913, Sylvia Pankhurst and that friend that she set up the East London suffragettes with, Zelie Emerson, were um, arrested for, again, attacking private property. Um, they were sent to prison for a very long period of imprisonment. Because they weren't treated as political prisoners, they went on hunger strike. Um, they also went on thirst strike. Instead of the authorities treating them as political prisoners, they force-fed both of those women. So an incredibly painful and incredibly degrading and humiliating experience for them both to go through, and something that they went through twice a day in the prisons. This was so appalling that Zelie Emerson tried to cut her own wrists um, whilst, whilst in her prison cell and was so weak that essentially she wasn't able to cut through the, the artery in her wrist. She said it, it was just like a rubber band that she couldn't cut through. Sylvia Pankhurst, also desperate to force her own release, decided to up the stakes by also going on a rest strike. So refusing to sleep and walking up and down her cell until, um, until she collapsed and, and collapsed on several occasions which, which forced the authorities to release her. So it's in that month, while they're doing that, that Sylvia is thinking about what happened in America. And there's another link here too. 
When Sylvia Pankhurst went to America, um, it was at an absolutely kind of extraordinary time in American history. A, a wave of working class militancy had broken out in the United States in 1909 um, with strikes of workers, um, initially in New York on the Lower East Side, an area where there were a lot of immigrant workers. Um, this was a strike initially led uh, by Jewish women uh, from Eastern Europe in the garment factories. It was called initially the uprising of the 20,000, um, but it spread far beyond 20,000 people. That was just in New York. This was a strike wave that lasted from 1909 all the way up to 1915, so this was incredibly significant. And Sylvia Pankhurst comes into contact with this wave of industrial militancy, very much of it led by women, when she arrives in Chicago in 1911. And she arrives right towards the end of a garment workers' strike. Um, again, this, this was something led by women workers working in the garment trade. Um, here's a picture of them on strike. Um, if you can see their banner, um, what they're saying is, we are striking for human treatments. Um, and that, that was absolutely true. It was a strike that was sparked off over uh, wage cuts. But it wasn't just about wage cuts. It was about the way that they were treated every single day of their lives when they walked into those factories. It was about the fact that their foreman felt that they could just swear at and abuse the women. Um, it was about the fact that there was a premium put on foreman um, who could get workers to produce over a certain amount per day. It was about the fact that they were subject to a whole series of fines at work, uh, which further reduced already paltry wages. Fines for things like using too much soap, uh, when they washed their hands. So this was um, a strike that broke out in Chicago at, towards the end of 1910. Um, and it was very, very bitterly fought. The women had to contend uh, not only with police violence and repression in the courts, many women were sent to prison in the course of this, um, there was a very high level of violence directed against the strikers generally. Two strikers were shot dead in the course of this strike. But also, if you were a garment worker in Chicago in 1911 and you went on strike, your employer would hire gangs of thugs to go and beat you up and to go and break your bones. So these are gangs of male thugs attacking um, very often young women workers and, and to do this to intimidate them out of going on strike. Now, when Sylvia arrives, there was somebody who was very keen um, to show her just how hard this struggle had been fought. Um, and that woman's name was Zelie Emerson. Now, Zelie Emerson was chairman of the rent committee, chairman. Um, and now what she did in that capacity, this was a very important job, this meant persuading all of the landlords in the city um, not to take any rent for the duration of the strike so that the strike could continue. She also ran um, a very, very cheap restaurant so that the, the strikers could, uh, could feed their families. Um, and this kind of support work was enormously important, particularly in, in terms of supporting women who were going on strike, because it wasn't just about the 40,000 um, workers who were on strike, but, all, but their families, of course, um, who were so relying on them. Families that grew in the course of the strike, there were 1,250 strike babies born in the course of this strike. So there needed to be that level of community support if there's going to be any chance of success. And it's Zelie Emerson, of course, um, who forms this incredibly important friendship with Sylvia Pankhurst. Now, when you're, um, when you're researching um, parts of history and you, you find a moment that you believe um, has been completely overlooked and the importance of it has never been appreciated. You don't generally expect to find a photograph of that moment. Um, but I did. Uh, so um, here's, uh, here's the photograph um, of the day that Sylvia Pankhurst and Zelie Emerson met. Uh, and it's better quality in the book. But um, Now, what you can maybe make out here, uh, this is Sylvia. She's looking into a prison cell, the kind of cells that the garment workers were locked up in. And this is Zelie Emerson standing right behind her. Um, and it's Zelie Emerson who will go, will go back with, with Sylvia in 1912 and go and set up what becomes the East London Federation of Suffragettes, this branch in East London that will be expelled. 
that's absolutely based upon the whole idea was that this would be a community organisation, this would galvanise the whole of the community in East London behind supporting women's political rights. So Sylvia Pankhurst's Tours of America have a massive impact um, on the suffrage movement when, when Sylvia Pankhurst returns. But it is Sylvia's approach to these tours that produces this absolutely extraordinary manuscript that she wrote. Because when she went over there, um, she was being toured around largely by American suffragists at the time. And so she was expected to go and speak to elite audiences um, in, in towns and cities around the US. She was often expected to speak in an evening dress, um, which for Sylvia, who had no interest in clothes whatsoever, uh, this is quite a kind of frustrating uh, aspect uh, of the tour. And she found the kind of elite social functions that she had to go to totally boring and irritating. Um, but what she also found speaking to these kind of audiences was that as she was describing how awful it was to work in a factory in Britain, for example, as a reason why women should have the vote, or how awful it was when militant suffragettes stood up for their rights and they were put in prison and they were treated in this way. She was talking about women on hunger strike being force-fed and so on and so forth that these audiences were absolutely prepared to agree with her and to, and to say, well, this, this must be absolutely terrible in Britain. Um, and, of course, we support your campaign for political rights. But what they would then follow up with was to say, we'd never have anything like that in the United States. That in the United States, everyone's paid good wages, women aren't put in prison uh, and treated like that. Women don't work in sweatshops. It, maybe a few of them do, but they're only the foreign women. And as soon as they become properly American, then they're, they're paid loads and loads of money. And anyway, we don't really even have women working at all, hardly, because wages are so great. Women are just expected to, to be the, the homemakers. And now, Sylvia was very skeptical about this. And what she did was she set out to research and find the truth about this. So what she does um, is eventually she gets completely fed up with the elite social functions and she designs her own tour. And what she does is to go out and research what American capitalism is. And so she does this by going to... Um, look at those that are resisting capitalism, but also exploring the lives of those who are marginalized and oppressed. So she goes into factories and she interviews women. She goes into prisons, she goes into workhouses, she goes into schools and colleges to talk to people and find out what they're experiencing. So that's what this book is about. It's about the now anonymous people that Sylvia Pankhurst met on those tours. And there's an extraordinary range in terms of what she addresses. She, as a socialist, wanted to see what socialism might look like. So she went to Milwaukee, where socialists have been elected to the local government. And she writes about that. She's very critical about the way that they're implementing things. She sees it as very top-down. She explores the plight of Native Americans um, in, a, I think, a very sophisticated and subtle chapter where she examines not only the way in which the American state are driving towards the extermination of Native Americans, but also, and very much this is where her identity as an artist comes in, looks at the way in which at the same time as they're exterminating the people, their culture's becoming commodified. Um, and that this is something that people are making a huge profit out of and that no longer do Native American people have ownership over the things that they're producing, their arts and their crafts. She also went to the South. Now, she was um, the first touring suffragette to do that, and she knew that, and she did it deliberately. Um, she went there to look at working conditions. It's the final chapter in the book. It's, it's the most harrowing chapter, I think. Um, most of it is about prisoners in in prisons in Nashville, Tennessee, um, where she talks about the absolutely vicious racism. This is the period in which the South um, is basically run by the, the Jim Crow laws. Um, so she talks about the criminalization, the terrorization of black people in the South. But also by doing that, she was making an incredibly radical statement because when she went to the South, she was invited to speak to a black university, to Fisk University students. And her hosts, who were white suffragists, um, 
who were essentially um, making overtly racist arguments for women to get the right to vote, essentially saying um, to racist politicians in the South, give women the vote, um, this will be a way of stopping black suffrage. <laughs> thereby completely erasing black women um, who would have got the right to vote. They said to her, these, these suffragists uh, in the South said, there's no way that you're going to go um, and undermine the arguments we've been making by going to speak at a black college. And Sylvia Pankhurst did go and speak at that college. So it was an incredibly important statement about what she was doing at that time. But what she also finds in the course of her research um, of, of going into factories is that women's inferior status, which of course was, was embodied in the fact that they didn't have the right to vote, meant that for working class women, uh, this, this meant that they could be paid less by their employers, and indeed they were. And therefore, it, you saw employers increasingly warming to the idea of feminizing their workforces and having more and more women working for them because it was cheaper and they could make better profits. And so what Sylvia is arguing in the book is that far from women's work being peripheral to American capitalism, um, it was becoming more and more central to American capitalism and that this would increasingly be the case, that capitalism wasn't just going to solve its own problems and enrich everybody, that what it was tending towards actually was employing more and more women and paying them f lower and lower wages. And that therefore, instead of families relying on a, on a fantastic wage um, that had basically been invented, um, that, was, that was earned by a male breadwinner, increasingly you had families relying on women's poverty wages. And therefore, far from the, the vote being something that might be necessary in Britain but not in the United States, it was just, if not more important, um, for women to campaign for their political rights in the United States and to have a voice and a say over how their lives were run. Now, the, the moment really that um, for Sylvia becomes incredibly important in this argument is when she sees very starkly and most grotesquely what the consequence of not having that power was. And this happened, this was an event that took place, it's one of the most famous events in American labor history. And it took place while Sylvia was in New York. And this was something um, that happened at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. Um, so this is a factory that made shirtwaists, so women's blouses, that's what they were, were called in the US. Um, this factory op occupied the top floors um, of a high-rise block um, floors that were too high for ladders on fire engines to reach. And if you worked in a factory like that, your employers weren't supposed to lock the doors so that people could leave those, those places of work easily. But they did lock the doors in the factory um, that we're talking about here. And they locked all of them but one. And this was because the employers at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory wanted to search all of their workers every time they left the building because they didn't want them stealing. Uh, they didn't want their workers stealing from them. But on the 25th of March, 1911, a fire broke out at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory and the workers were trapped. And 146 workers, most of them women, most of them from immigrant backgrounds, were either burnt to death or died jumping from the windows to escape the flames. This had a massively profound impact on Sylvia Pankhurst and she was on the funeral procession for the victims, um, which you can, you can vaguely see here. Um, it's at this point I'd, I'd like just to read uh, from the book. I'd like to give you, um, I'd like you to be able to hear Sylvia Pankhurst's words, of course. Um, this is something I'm going to read um, from the end of the preface of, of her book um, in which she talks about this event um, and why this, this seemed to her so important. Uh, but it's also Sylvia Pankhurst writing about New York. Um, and I think she's got a, a, really, a, a really engaging um, and very arresting way of writing about New York. So I'll, I'll read you um, Sylvia Pankhurst's words from the end of the preface, and then I'll conclude with some thoughts, and then maybe we can, we can have a bit of a chat about this. So, um, so this is from Sylvia Pankhurst's manuscript uh, on New York. 
But even as it is today, how wonderful is New York from some high place at twilight, when the lofty buildings of commerce are fading into obscurity, and one sees not their great walls, faint and shadowy, but their thousand, thousand windows like jewels of fire. Their golden patterning and the blue fading light cast a compelling glamour over this city of substantial and materialistic trade. It becomes ethereal as a city of dreams, beautiful and calm as the home of supermen. Seeing the city thus, it is strange to remember it on a sad day of morning, when rain poured from a gray sky and a long procession of saddened work girls marched in their poor black garments to show honor and respect to their comrades burnt to death in an awful fire. A fire that was fatal because ordinary means of exit were inadequate, fire escapes were too short to reach the factory's monstrous height, and when the girls sprang from the roof, their tender bodies came hurtling down with an impelling force that tore the sheets held out to them to shreds. As one travels over that vast continent of America, teeming with wondrous natural resources, with endless possibilities of new growth, one sees, as in our older and more crowded land, everywhere, the cruel waste of precious human energy and the crushing out of fragile, tender things. One sees, perhaps more clearly than in any other country, new ideals of civilization striving with the old, the sharp, impersonal, pitiless commercial enterprise that everywhere crushes out the slothful inexactitudes and rough, spasmodic kindlinesses and brutalities of the past and would, in its turn, make the human beings that it uses ever more machine-like. One now sees faced with the new upspringing of public thought and action that shall place higher than all else the happiness and development of human lives. It is because the things with which they deal are symptomatic of growth from the waste and hardship of the old ill-regulated past to the splendid hopes and promises of the future that these chapters have been written. And I think in that beautiful description of New York, you have encapsulated Sylvia Pankhurst's approach to America. On the one hand, she was so excited by coming to a country that seemed so young and flouting of convention. I mean, remember, she's come from Britain. Um, the dynamism of it, the production in, in Britain, the fact there's buildings bigger than you've ever seen before, more is being produced than ever before. But on the other hand, she sees that if all of that is just being done for the profit of an elite few, then it's an inhuman system. And instead of just allowing capitalism to run rampant, as some argued people should, what she sees is that what needs to be done is a fight for a different kind of society, where you don't have people saying, I'll represent you and I understand what your interests are, but where each individual has the power to control what happens in their own lives. And that was a completely revolutionary idea, and it's an idea that she brought back to Britain to change the course of the suffrage history and, and movement here. So thanks. Brilliant, thanks very much. That was uh, super insightful and uh, very passionate at the end there. I'm somewhat moved. Uh, are there any questions um, to, s to kick off the discussion? Hi, thank you so much for your talk. This was very interesting, especially, so I'm American, so it's nice to like, bring the bridge the two together. Um, my question is, uh, a little bit off topic, um, you know, I went through like the American public school system and everything else and you're, you know, you're a historian and, and going through and seeing, um, learning about history through the lens that we do, um, do you suggest a more radical approach to kind of, you know, going through the school system, learning histories, but having a better labor lens through it? Um, you know, as an adult, you know, learning about the triangle shirtwaist, it's, completely different from what I learned in high school, for example. So I don't know if you have any comments on that. So. 
Yeah, thank you. It's a, it's a great question. Um, and yeah, no, I have a real problem with the way that history is so often taught um, in, in schools. Um, and in terms of how we ought to um, teach it better, I mean, I think it has to be... Um, it can't be divorced from trying to change society in the present. Um, if we knew the history, and like if we talked about the history of the Triangle Fire, would we have Grenfell, for example? Would we? So, so it's absolutely tied to the kind of society in which we live. The history that we're taught tells us, in a way, more about the present at the moment than it does about the past. Um, so, so that's the problem. And it, it, I think it is in the course of fighting for a different kind of world that we uncover these histories. I mean, that's certainly where I'm coming from as as an activist. It was through becoming an activist, through meeting socialists, that I heard a different historical narrative. That, those, that, that was my education, really, in, in terms of history. Um, and so I think we have a, a duty, really, to, to talk about and remember these things. And I think, I, I think there are hugely important efforts that are being made to, to do that. There are obviously in, in this country, and as, as there are in the US as well, um, but you know, you get people in the labor movement and socialists organizing events to commemorate uh, particular things. I mean, here we have a, a day dedicated to, to the Toll Puddle Martyrs. We've got the Durham Miners Gala. Um, we've got Leveler's Day uh, round around this part of the world. Um, so I think I think that's those are incredibly important important things. Um, but yeah, I mean, I do think I think it's intimately connected to, to what we're doing now. What, what do you think? Um, what's <laughs> <laughs> what, what's <laughs> I have to say that I was taught history by someone who was a member of the Communist Party. So, you know, O-level and A-level, which was absolutely fantastic because you had a really good analysis of, like, the Irish question. I mean, she maybe didn't, you know, she didn't quote Marx too much because we obviously had to get through all our papers, but it was really significant for me. I, and I don't know what, ha what other people took from it. Actually, that would be interesting, but it was really good. And it's the same with economics now, isn't it? I mean, you know, how do they teach economics? Well, they make it up, don't they? I mean, they just made it up and then they just carried on teaching. It's just beyond belief, really. I went to LSE, actually, and I um, didn't do economics. And I argued with all, lots and lots of people because I was like, why would I want to do that? I mean, this is, you know, 35 years ago. Why would I want to do economics the way it's taught here? And, and we know still LSE is incredibly backwards in, in how they teach it. And other places are much, much more forward looking. So I think, you know, there's a lot to be done. <laughs> I thought the only thing you could do at LSE was economics. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I, th I thought I'd ask this now because um, uh, it follows on a little bit when it comes to adult education so obviously things that we might get for our education be like what we get on television what the BBC has to offer and I don't know if you've seen you might have done uh, Gentleman Jack recently uh, watch it it's yeah. interesting um basically it gives i've only watched the first episode and i couldn't really cope with any more the life of anne lister who was uh, apparently britain's or the world's first lesbian and well you know out and out because she was she was she was able to be because she was so rich and so she's the capitalist of like that part of history and it's so she says things in the first episode like, um, has anyone else watched it? Or is it just literally just me? I'm like, oh, okay. So, all right, I'll tell you, all right, maybe this is a little lost on everyone else, so I'll have to describe it all. So she's got all this power because, and is able to sort of circumvent the rest of society because um, she inherited the money and her uncle knew that her, her dad couldn't cope with it. So he, uh, so she, um, goes around asking, trying to collect the rent of all the properties that he owns. And she has some pretty difficult conversations. And you're supposed to think, oh, this woman. Oh, isn't she great? And she's just like, give me the money. Like, really, like, oh, you know, no, no, like, yeah, no holes barred. And then the bloke says to her, like, you know, one day the worker's going to stand up against you. And she goes, well, we're going to give as good as we get. And you're still supposed to like her as a character. And I don't know how much that's based on her, like, diaries but that's what we're being given that's like the feminist icons that were being handed by the bbc at the moment like 2019 and my question is 
thoughts, I guess. <laughs> Sylvia Pankhurst drama now. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, well, this is this is one of the things, and why, um, you know, it comes back to this question about why Emmeline and Christabel Pankhurst were so wrong to say class has got nothing to do with it. We can just focus on um, fighting, f uh, you know, against women's oppression without even mentioning class. In fact, it'd be divisive to do so. As you say, well, then what does this? What does this kind of? Where does this end up? Um, and I think we're still very much given that by yeah by the BBC and these dramas and they just focus on yeah a few individual women it's never about collective action I mean when was the last drama done about like women on strike <laughs> you know it just doesn't happen they don't talk about these collective histories and how we change stuff collectively um, and I think I, I think it's a it's an absolutely massive problem. I think I think you're completely right. And it is about saying, oh yeah, class isn't important. Let's just focus on these few. It, it, it totally relates to the just kind of oh the the only problem is the glass ceiling, um, rather than which obviously the glass ceiling is a problem. But um, you know that's not actually the the problem that most women in society are facing. Um, and that sort of relentless focus on it as if that's the only way in which women's oppression is expressed. I mean, it's not, and it's not the, it's not the dominant way that, that it's expressed. Um, so no, I, I totally agree. If anyone hasn't seen Made in Dagenham, you should, you should watch that. My first bit was, you're right, I had an argument with a friend of mine who did economics when I went, you know, it's taught ideologically. And he's like, no, it's not. Uh, and then I was like, well, did you read any Karl Marx? He went, he's not an economist. I was like, oh, God, all right, well, fine with this. We're not going anywhere with this. My question was, what, sort of what uh, sort of does the sort of life and writings of Sylvia Pankhurst, what can it sort of teach us about sort of political tactics today, be that in sort of feminist movement or in sort of socialist movement? Sorry, I feel like... No, no, no. I'll stand here and then... Um, yeah, no, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, and, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, obviously, looking back at the suffragette movement, all of the women that participated in it were incredibly inspiring, incredibly courageous women. Um, but not all of them speak to us the way that Sylvia Pankhurst does today. Um, and that's because she never gave up. She never sided with the British establishment over anything. Um, that's why she doesn't have the statues, why she doesn't have the official commemoration. Um, but she was somebody who all of her life fought against oppression, uh, fought against exploitation, somebody who opposed the First World War, somebody who was tremendously inspired by the Russian Revolution, one of the first anti-fascists in this country, a lifelong anti-racist. And this, is, this still speaks to us today, I think, because, yeah, we still suffer the problems of, of women's oppression. Um, oppression is, is so class-based, your, ex your life experience is going to be defined broadly by the class that you're born into. Uh, we still have racism, we still have to combat the far right. So Sylvia Pankhurst is, is deeply relevant. And I think one of the things about her sort of tactics and her approach to fighting back um, that is relevant, that she sees at the time, is that you can't progress as a democratic cause. You can't um, gain greater democracy by forging reactionary alliances. Um, and that's, that's the conclusion that her mother and older sister came to. And it's a conclusion that they came to, you know, partly because of the, the quite extraordinary period in which they were activists. I mean, you know, they all started off in the Independent Labour Party. They all believed that you could get socialism through Parliament. Maybe not Christabel, but, you know. Um, but she said she did, you know. This is what they thought. And in this period when they become leading activists, certainly the daughters, is a period in which um, that seems less and less likely, even though the Labour Party have got representation in Parliament, where the Liberal Party, who are in government, are really struggling to get any kind of legislation through because of the Tories in the House of Lords are just blocking everything. This produces a, a huge constitutional crisis, <laughs> which is relevant to today, um, 
in which people have to ask questions. Well, if it's not going to come through Parliament, I mean, to the extent it's not going to come through Parliament, this is a conclusion not just that the left draw, but the right draw. The, the leader of the Conservative Party in exactly this period was um, watching soldiers being drilled in Ulster and signing a covenant saying that they would rise up if home rule was granted to Ireland. So this is the leader of the Conservative Party, Her Majesty's loyal opposition, literally giving the green light to civil war to overthrow a democratically elected government. So the right are drawing conclusions at this time as well about, okay, if it's not going to come through Parliament, what are we going to do about it? Now, this, for, for Emmeline and Christabel, this is a big crisis, and they decide that, that maybe they should make reactionary alliances to try, and, to try and push this through. They can only see that as the way forward. And I think they do that because they don't have the kind of political courage that Sylvia Pankhurst does, which is to see if this is going to be a real struggle getting this through Parliament, we've got to ask questions about how do we transform society. And her answer to that is there's something, something kind of fundamentally rotten about the British state and also therefore that there are a lot of other people struggling for democratic change whether that's control over their own lives if you're working in a factory there's a similar strike wave in Britain in this period um, that to, to the US last from like 1910 to 1914 um, so whether it's 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 working class people involved in that strike wave whether it's uh, people in Ireland involved in the campaigns for, for freedom for Ireland from the British Empire Sylvia Pankhurst sees that if they're going to progress the democratic cause, that they have to ally with other forces that are fighting for democratic change as well, and they have to link up those struggles, and that that's where the strength is going to come from. It's going to have to be collective strength that actually fundamentally transforms society. Um, and that's, that's really the difference between them, I think. Brilliant. Any other questions? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What about one? <laughs> um, yeah, just um, uh, kind of another one on your sort of motivation for writing the book as well. I was just, and apologies if you sort of covered this right at the start. I think I was like faffing about with some cables, but um, yeah, like as well as sort of giving Sylvia Pankhurst like more prominence in the history, do you th also think there's an extent to which, because I, you know, I'd heard the name and, you know, obviously knew that she was connected, but I didn't really know that there was all this sort of radicalism to her. Uh, so, you know, almost in a similar way that uh, think of like the treatment of like Martin Luther King, where, you know, the, the sort of, uh, the name has some, sort of liberal currency that and it's sort of the their sort of radicalism is erased from it um yeah do you is that something that happens with sylvia pankhurst as well would you say um i, th I think it does to an extent although she's she's been quite difficult to uh, liberalise. Um, I mean, the thing is, for the establishment, they've got other Pankhursts they can they can rely on, so they don't need her. Um, so that's what happens. We hear about Emmeline, we hear about Christabel, um, we don't hear very much about Sylvia, and certainly outside of the suffrage movement, we don't hear very much about her. So, if we do hear it, oh yeah, she was a suffragette as well. Um, but the way in which she then kind of understood you know she's got a, a life of campaigning she's an experienced political campaigner by the time she writes this book she's very experienced um but you know she's somebody who has this lifetime of political activism who's just extraordinary so so largely they just ignore her basically um so yeah that was that was sort of one one motivation for the book but the other was of course that there was this manuscript and it, I read it when I wrote the biography, and um, which obviously was an attempt to kind of talk about Sylvia and how she's relevant today. But this manuscript, it, like, it haunted me. Um, and I think it is quite haunting. That's probably the best way to describe it. It stayed with me, um, particularly, as, you know, as I said, that, that last chapter about the prisons in Nashville um, is something that you can't forget once you've read it. Uh, but also there were weird bits in it. So um, most of Sylvia's books are like this big. Um, and they're, they're great. I mean, she's a brilliant writer. She's, is, you know, as you've heard, she's got this kind of, um, she writes in a very sort of beautiful way. Um, m most of her writing is kind of, um, 
sort of reminiscent of that, that sort of 19th century novel style. So the stuff she would have read as a child, it you know, reads a bit like Dickens or a bit. Um, and I love Dickens, so that's, that's great for me. Um, but, they're, but they're big tomes. Now this, um, oh, she didn't finish it, so we don't know how long she wanted it to be, but it's eight chapters. Um, it's short, and all of the chapters are written in a different style. Um, so some of them are really kind of empirical, and there's tables and, and um, so on and so forth. Others are, are very descriptive. There's one, so chapter three um, is this kind of, when I read it, first of all, and like, no one's ever quoted from it, so I presume nobody else worked out what was going on there as well. You read it and you think, is this a dream? Is this a piece of fiction? It's about her watching a, a children performing Sleeping Beauty. But you don't know, I mean, it's just written in this kind of amazing way. Um, anyway, so I think I've decoded what happens, um, which, I, which I won't tell anybody. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll leave it as a surprise, because it's quite fun. Um, but, uh, but it's in the book, yeah, I, I've provided an explanation, which, uh, which I'm pretty sure is right. Which for only ten pounds. Um, so uh, yeah, so I knew this was an important manuscript. Um, I knew it was interesting. I knew there was something fascinating going on here. But then when I, what I thought I'd do, I was like, I'll just like write a little article about the tours. And then when I found out about the tours, I realised how how important the manuscript was in that context. Um, it it became something quite striking. So that's. That's what I wanted to do, to tell this story that kind of fell through the cracks of both American and British suffrage history. Yeah? Is that a hand? Yeah. Commit to your... 20 pounds, 20 pounds, anyone else 20 pounds? My question's about, uh, a little bit about um, Sylvia Pankhurst's process of radicalization. So I don't know if you've seen, I don't know if anyone else has seen the documentary Thursday's Child, but um, it's a really amazing documentary actually about her, which is hard to get now. And they showed it at the Cube in Bristol. Uh, I actually have a copy because uh, I was given it by the director and I'm planning on digitalizing it and getting it up online, which has happened before and it was taken down. So my strategy will just be tell them to fuck off and keep putting it back up until they give up. I put it on torrent sites. It's part of a plan of getting basically radical libertarian communist, left communist stuff up online, which is a kind of chapter of radical politics has been completely erased, you know, by the rise of the Soviet Union and the, basically its failure. Um, so the, the plan with other people is to get a digital archive of this. So I'm just wondering what, how she was very involved in this, you know, to the extent that it said in this documentary, you know, she, she even argued with Lenin, she went to Russia, she went and argued with him. So she's representative of this really interesting, like, uh, kind of radical, kind of uncompromising left. I, I, I guess, where did it come from? Like, how did she, how did she become like this? And what do you think really, could you say a bit about what you think influenced her and maybe America, anything else? Um, I mean, her. I mean, are we recording this or? Yes. Should I? Oh right, okay. I'll keep keep using the microphone then. Um, uh, yeah, no. It's a, it's a, it's a really kind of interesting political development, um, and it's it's one that you can kind of see emerging in this book, where she starts to write about her ideas about what representative democracy should be. Um, once the Russian Revolution happens, she's then got a model for a far more kind of democratic kind of society. Um, and that, she's really looking to the Soviets, the workers' councils. And for Sylvia, who at, at this point is saying, we can't have people who don't understand, um, who don't understand working people's lives, writing legislation on their behalf. That's sort of, you can see what, where she's going. This is in a period when lots of people are, are talking about what, what a democratic society should look like, and so she's she's contributing to that debate. But once the Russian revolutions happen, she just sees that as, uh, the idea of the Soviets as so superior to what goes on in the British Parliament. Um, the idea that you could directly elect your representatives from a workplace, from an army battalion, because of course um, 
everybody was, was conscripted in Russia in, in the period when the revolution broke out, that you could recall a representative as soon as they didn't, um, as soon as they kind of ceased to represent you. Um, she saw this as far more direct and she wanted to kind of apply this as well. She was trying to think about ways that could be applied to women. Um, so that's, um, so the Soviets for her become absolutely the model. Now, the debate with, with Lenin um, is, is, a, is a tactical debate. And you're right, he made her the subject of, of a polemic um, called Left-Wing Communism and Infantile Disorder that he wrote. Um, and, and he invited her. I mean, this was, this was a massive debate within, within the Communist Party um, at the time. So she actually sort of set up the first Communist Party in, in Britain. Um, so inspired was she by, by what Lenin had done in, in Russia and by what the Bolsheviks had done in Russia. Um, now, what Sylvia was arguing was the Soviets have pr proved the kind of superiority of that form of democracy. Um, therefore, any participation in Parliament was to um, give, give working-class people um, illusions about parliamentary democracy, um, and therefore she thought that was the wrong thing to do. So she kind of ended up saying that, you know, in some ways the Labour Party was even worse than the Conservative Party because they were um, giving people illusions that, that socialism could come through Parliament. And what Lenin was saying was, well, at this point in Britain, the Labour Party commands the support um, of the majority of working people. And therefore, there needs to be a dialogue between communists and the Labour Party, even suggested um, that the communists ought to affiliate to the Labour Party at a time when that was possible. So um, this, was, this was a big debate that they had out in, in their publications. He invited her to Russia to have the debate with him, um, so publicly. And this is one of the things she was so impressed by. She talked about how the Russians were always for dragging debate out into the open and not for closeting it amongst a few little experts. Um, and so when, when she arrived, this, this copy of the polemic was on the, on, so it was a big international conference. Um, this, this polemic was on the pillow of every delegate. Um, so, so when she arrived, she sees like what, what she's going to be debating against. Um, and essentially, partly because of developments in, inside the British Communist Party, but uh, essentially she, she was kind of won over and then she wasn't won over. Um, and then became one of the kind of foremost exponents for a while um, of that kind of left communist. Um, approach and so she was she was very much kind of working with those in they were quite strong in Holland uh, also Alexandra Kollontai she was working with with her for for a, a short while um, but that becomes sort of superseded quite soon by the rising tide of, of fascism um, and that becomes her emphasis and she doesn't take the same approach that she was starting to articulate about British politics when she sees the rise of fascism then she then in w face with that threat she starts to uh, although she doesn't really sort of put it into practice in Britain because her focus is is Ethiopia and Italy really um, but she then works with figures in the Labour Party and in the trade union movement um, and she does go back again to trying to sort of form those those broader alliances um, but you're right that's that's one of the kind of crucial developments in in her life. Can we have a screening of Thursday's Child? Brilliant. Working on it. Yeah, thanks, Kate. Uh, um, if Sylvia Pankhurst was around today, where would she be organising? Who would she be affiliated to, and what allies would be, or, or who would be her allies? Great question. Um, it's a great question. It's always a really hard one to to answer, um, and it's. Um, I mean, it depends on on which point we we happen upon Sylvia. Um, if we're talking about this period of her life, um, it, which is really the period in which she's. Um, well, there's a number of years, but there's a sort of 10 years when she's very deeply involved in, in, in British politics and trying to affect things. Um, I mean, I think her focuses would be um, very similar, <laughs> which uh, tells us something about the society in which we are living today. Um, I think 
Austerity for her would seem absolutely monstrous. Um, she would understand that as an ideological tool. Um, it was exactly the same kind of rhetoric that was um, used in the First World War, this kind of, we're all in it together, we've all got to make sacrifices. She saw through the absolute hypocrisy of that, um, but also what was what was really going on, the massive kind of redistribution of wealth. Um, she was somebody who very much campaigned against kind of profiteering in the First World War, so I think austerity um, would be something that she would see as absolutely monstrous. You know, she was somebody who set up cost-price kitchens so that people could eat, um, food either for free and they were given tickets so that you couldn't tell who was eating for free or who was eating very very cheaply we've now got food banks you know opened up all around Britain I think that would make her absolutely sick to her stomach um, the idea that you know in in some ways things have really really been rolled back um, so I think I think that would be absolutely key for her um, she was all of her life an anti-war activist. She was a steadfast anti-imperialist all of her life. Um, I think she would be absolutely horrified uh, by the fact that, well, I mean, <laughs> we can imagine if, if Sylvia was sat here today, um, you know, the day after, um, you know, warmonger Donald Trump has, has been invited over, um, you know, a very different kind of special relationship to the one that we've been talking about. Um, you know, one that's absolutely been been cemented in, in blood, one that's all about imperialism and imperial power across the globe. I think that would, that would horrify her as well. Um, and of course, she'd be, you know, she'd be looking at, at women's rights. She'd be, she'd be looking at racism in society, um, and and all of these things are are all too prevalent. And I think, I think the the striking thing about her is that, um, as a socialist, she saw it was important to to link up struggles with with people that she might disagree with on other things, um, but trying to always find common ground and trying to turn movements into mass movements, which is the only way that she saw they could be democratic. Again, to kind of come back to that quote about dragging things out into the open, she wasn't for um, little kind of cliquey behind doors making all the decisions. She wanted movements that were big and broad and that put working class people absolutely at the heart. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think she would have been on the Trump demo. I think she would be on the Stop the War demonstrations. I think she would be demonstrating against austerity. She'd be doing all of those things, I think. Sorry. Thank you very much. Um, I wanted to ask you about uh, uh, Sylvia's link with Ethiopia. Could you comment a little bit on uh, how that form of activism developed and how it has informed uh, her ideas? Um. Yeah, so, um, I mean, it's a fascinating chapter of her life and a very long one um, that, again, is almost always overlooked. Um, so, as I said, yeah, she was one of the first people in Britain to identify the dangers of the rise of fascism. She knew what was happening in Italy in 1922. Um, she'd been to international communist conferences in, in Italy in, in 1919, 1920. Um, so she was following developments there very closely, and her, her partner um, was an Italian exile. Um, it's called Silvio Corio, so it's Silvia and Silvio. Um, so they were they were very close to what was happening in in Italy, um, and she really saw that the the rise of fascism represented an existential threat to everything that she dedicated her life to fighting for for workers' rights, for democracy, for women's rights. Um, and then in 1935, fascist Italy invaded the African country, Ethiopia, um, which was one of the few African countries that hadn't been colonized. And this was done with the absolute kind of complicity of British, uh, Britain and France, um, who didn't obviously see anything wrong with this. They had their own colonies in Africa. Um, what, was, what was the problem? Um, now, this was the invasion of Ethiopia was done under the guise of a so-called civilizing mission. Um, and fascist Italy were, were saying that, yeah, they, they were going in there to, to civilize this barbarous country. So what Sylvia starts to do is to raise awareness about the reality of the occupation. And again, this, is, this comes back to her writing and um, just how important her writing always was. She was, for most of her life, she was a newspaper editor. 
Uh, and she sets up a new newspaper in response to this called the New Times and Ethiopia News. And it's this amazing document of, of investigative journalism. And what she does is to get reports out there from occupied Ethiopia about what it's like. And so she reveals things about um, the way in which the, the invasion broke all kinds of, uh, of, of international laws, the fact that poison gas was used, the fact that Red Cross stations were, were bombed by the fascists, um, the kind of atrocities that happened. She gets reports out about this terrible massacre um, that the fascists instigate in Addis Ababa in the capital. Which she also very much exposes um, her own government um, and their role in it. And also what she does, um, the British government were very keen not to, um, not to ally with Ethiopia um, and not to, to, not to defend the Ethiopian cause. Um, and the argument they gave was, oh, Ethiopia's been defeated. Um, and so what her newspaper did that was so important as well was to talk about the resistance movement in, in Ethiopia um, and to show that Ethiopia hadn't submitted to, to occupation at all. So that was incredibly important. And it, it was important for a number of reasons, um, not, not just for Ethiopia, but this publication um, actually became a real inspiration to Pan-Africanists um, around the world and also to people um, struggling against British colonialism because it reported a struggle that was simultaneously anti-fascist and anti-colonialist. Um, and so the newspaper was banned in Sierra Leone um, by, by the British um, and all of these kind of things. It was still seen as a very dangerous newspaper. Um, so that, that's... Um, that's a, a little bit about it, but it's not by any means the, the limit of what, what she did there. But yeah, it was, it was massively important. Okay, I think we have time for one last question. If anybody has a burning one, if not, we'll wrap up. Um, yeah, so, what's your next book? What, I'm going to write something totally different, I hope. Uh, I'm going to write something about Karl Marx and Paris. Quite <laughs> <laughs> lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, so, yeah, big um, last thank you to, to Catherine for a really fascinating talk. Um, thank you to Isaac for organising it. Thanks to Tin for doing the sound. Great sound. Um, and if you're, um, yeah, if, so if you're interested in Bristol Transformed or talks like this, um, you can check out our um, Twitter, our Facebook, and our website. Um, if you are interested in being involved in organising events like this, come and talk to me or Isaac or Kulsoom or Charlie at the back, um, and, 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 and we'll get you sorted out. Great. Okay. Thank you for coming. Thanks. <laughs>